pray. We know not, O Lord, what your intention is this morning, what you will accomplish in our hearts. But we ask that you not leave us unaffected or unchanged. How would you, O Lord, change this community through what this congregation hears today? I don't know, but I ask for it. And I ask that you would change not just those around us, but that you would change things inside of us. There are some here who need to be born again to the living hope because they're hopeless. There are others who already know the hope, and yet they've been living contrary to it, maybe for a short time, maybe for a long time, but Father, would you grant them repentance? Whether that repentance leads to salvation or sanctification, the prescription is the same, repent and believe. So Father, would you do things that I have no idea even how to ask for, and I don't need to know what you're doing. Our elders don't need to know it, but we plead with you for the sake of your glory that you would do it. Do it in my life, O oh Lord, and in my family, and in our children, all of the children here at Calvary Bible Church. We need you, O oh Lord. We come to you as dependent believers, hungry for your word. May we not take offense at the word of God this morning, but may you use it to fill us with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Jonathan Edwards is commonly referred to as the greatest theological and philosophical mind America has ever produced. In the early 1700s, he served as a pastor in a church in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he preached the Word of God for a number of years. Just as a side note, in the providence of God, he lost his position in Northampton, and he found himself out in the wilderness ministering to Indians, many of whom came to Christ. He was eventually, eventually invited, uh, not invited, but compelled to go to the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton University, to be the president of that school. And like in our time now, there was a pandemic happening, and it was smallpox. And they gave him and, and compelled him to take the live vaccine, and it killed him. He died at Princeton, but not before he had an enormous influence on the world. If you're at all familiar with his name, Jonathan Edwards, you're probably, it's probably because you're a high school American literature teacher, namely, probably for many of you, your mom, required you to read a sermon that he wrote and preached in July 8th, 1731. And the name of that sermon, many of you know, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Hence my prayer a moment ago that we would not be offended by the message today. The preaching of this sermon proved to be the catalyst for the first great awakening in New England. It was a gospel firestorm that began in old England under the preaching of George Whitfield and spread like wildfire through the whole of Britain and all of the American colonies. It was said in those days that more people knew, met, and listened to George Whitfield by far than people who ever heard of or saw or listened to George Washington. The effects of that man's preaching was phenomenal, as was the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. And as you can probably deduce from the title of the sermon, it was a strong, if not shocking, appeal to sinners to own their sin and to embrace the gospel and escape the otherwise inescapable wrath of God. The very first words 
of this sermon give us a taste of what the sermon was like. I printed out the whole thing this morning and tried to read it this morning, and that was impossible. (laughs) But you can get online and see it. But here's the beginning of his sermon to a, 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 a small church, probably like ours, packed to the gills. This was not the time that It was actually his second preaching of this sermon in a different church that really had the impact. But here's the beginning of the sermon. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. He asks, what are we that we should think to stand before him at whose rebuke the earth trembles and before whom the rocks are thrown down. They deserve to be cast into hell. So, so that that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice cries aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. This was the first paragraph. And I suspect Edwards got the idea from, for his sermon by reading the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. Like Edwards, Paul was attempting to awaken the recipients of his letter to Rome. He wanted them to understand that God's wrath against sinners is just and deserved. And that means not only Gentile sinners, but Jewish sinners. It could come in any moment, God's judgment. And when it comes, it will be a terrible act of divine justice for sin. The Jews, however, took offense at Paul's gospel. He found it impossible to believe that God would judge and condemn the very people that he called to himself and whom he called his precious treasured. They railed against the teaching that God is no respecter of persons when it comes to divine judgment. Both Jew and Gentile will suffer judgment. In fact, it is to the Jew first, not only the blessing of the gospel, but the warning the warning of judgment. They preferred a kinder, gentler God who would overlook their sin and give them a pass while the rest of the world suffered under the wrath of God. Many people who hear this message rejected out of hand because it strikes so many as unloving and even judgmental. But consider this. If you were at home one evening with your wife and children, and unbeknownst to you, your house had caught on fire, would it be unloving and judgmental for a neighbor to pound frantically on your door, begging you to wake up and snatch up your wife and children and run for your life? Or imagine a doctor who, while... Your child is is being evaluated. The doctor discovers a cancerous tumor. Would it be unloving and judgmental to tell the parents that their child has a tumor and is in need of of immediate treatment? I think it was on my first trip to Ukraine. The team I was serving with took us to the Chernobyl zone. I think I've been there three times now. We went there to minister to to the poor. Believe it or not, there are people who live there still. There are orphanages there in the Chernobyl zone. The trip that led from Kiev, Ukraine, to Chernobyl was about two hours, and I had the opportunity to have a conversation with the man I was, one of the men I was traveling with, who turned out to be a physician, a pediatrician, actually. And I asked him what it was like immediately after the nuclear power plant exploded. 
And his response was mainly about the children. He told me that whenever a child was brought to the clinic and it was clear that they had terminal radiation poisoning, they were instructed by the authorities to withhold the truth from the family and simply prescribe medications that would alleviate the symptoms, at least some of them, and manage the pain until that child's untimely death. But what if there was a cure? What if there was a cure? Wouldn't you run to that village and risk everything and pound on every door, pleading with them to accept the cure? In Romans 1 through 3, this is what Paul is doing. He's pounding upon the door of his fellow Jews, pleading with them to leave everything behind and run to the remedy. Leave your traditions. But they were hesitant, to put it mildly. Why? Well, because the bad news about their standing with God was offensive to them. They were too proud to confess that they had contracted, even before they were born, the terminal SIN disease. I see two major points in our text for this morning from Romans 3. Paul talks about, number one, the people infected with the disease, and secondly, the symptoms that identify the disease. But before we unpack these two themes, let's take a moment to read the text together. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? And we'll read Romans 3, 9 through 18. Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you may be seated. Now, Paul was determined to awaken the Jewish men and women, as I said, to the danger that they were in before the day of God's just and holy wrath was unleashed upon them. You see, mankind has a disease that is infinitely more serious than radiation poisoning or anything else. Terminal cancer, as bad as it can be, it is not nearly as bad as the SIN disease. We are sinners by birth and, more importantly, we are sinners by choice. This, however, is not welcome news. I expect that even right now, as people are listening to this message, they're, they're already warming up on their offense that they are about to take to this. We are sinners by birth and by choice. This, however, is not welcome news. It is necessary news. It is the beginning of the gospel. But it is not welcome. No one wants to hear that they have term, a terminal disease. And no one wants to be told their whole being is stained by sin. But that's what makes the good news so great. It's what makes the good news so great. Why? Well, because as destructive and painful and deadly as sin is, there is a cure. What's more, though the production of the antidote was extremely costly, it has been completely paid for by the only person in the world who had sufficient resources to pay it in full. Because of this 
gracious sacrifice. The treatment is available as a gift of grace to all who will believe it and receive it. But there's a catch. In order to receive the antidote, one has to freely admit that they are hopelessly infected with the disease. Sin. Secondly, they have to believe that the cure God offers is absolutely sufficient for their healing. And by that I mean spiritual healing. As in Isaiah 53, when speaking about the Christ's crucifixion, he says, by his scourging we are, what? Healed. It's not a promise of physical healing. It's about healing from the penalty of sin. They have to believe that the cure God offers is absolutely sufficient for that healing. And finally, number three, they must personally and humbly ask for and receive it by faith. Now, as we begin wading into this text, we, we hear Paul announcing the identities of the, of the people who are infected. The identities of the people who are infected. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul wants us to know who has contracted the SIN disease. And verse 9 tells us that the infected people are these two groups. They are the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, that may not sound like, it may, may actually sound like a rather narrow swath of the population of the world, but in reality, it's not. And you already know this, but let me restate it in case. In the minds of the Jews to whom Paul is writing, there were only two kinds of people in the world. There were only two categories. There were the Jews and there were the Gentiles. Nobody else existed in their mind. If you were Jewish, you were blessed of God. If you were Gentiles, you were hated. No one else existed. And so when the Jews referenced the Greeks, what they really meant was everyone who was not a Jew. These were the nations, the Greeks, the Gentiles. And so the Jews and the Gentiles were the only two groups in that culture and Paul is saying, all of them, all of them have the disease. Don't worry about wearing a face mask. Um, everybody's already got it. Nevertheless, there may be a third group that he's referring to here. If you're reading the New American Standard Version, this is pretty clear, but in the ESV from which I'm preaching this morning, it's, it's a little bit muddled. It's interesting, verse 9, the word for Jews, the word here in your Bible, if you have the ESV, says, uh, inserts the word Jews. And, but this is, this is not actually translation. This is interpretation, which translators should try to refrain from. Um, they inserted the word Jews because of their interpretive decision that even though the word Jews is not in the original text, it is what Paul meant. But perhaps it wasn't what Paul meant. And I don't want to make a bigger deal out of this than necessary. And I may be wrong on this. But notice with me in verse 9 where Paul asks, Are we better than they? And the question is, who is the we? When he says, are we better than they? Well, glance back at verse 8 for a moment. And notice that Paul complains that some people have spread the slanderous report about what we say. In this statement, we clearly refers to Paul and his companions in ministry. In other words, it may very well be that Paul is referencing not the Jews or the Gentiles, but the Christians. 
he may be implying that while he is calling all Gentiles and Jews to repent, we Christians were likewise born, born with the same terminal disease that everybody else was born with. And Paul is emphasizing that. He's not looking down on the Jews. He's not looking down on the Gentiles. He's not looking down on anybody. He just wants everybody to know that everybody has the disease. And so he's saying, us Christians, us Christians aren't even exempt. I mean, I'm telling you to repent, but I tell everybody to repent, even the people who go to my church. No one is immune from the SIN disease. From conception, we have the same nature, the same propensity to sin. The whole world is universally affected, and no one is excluded. This is the one area of theological thought in which it is perfectly appropriate to be a universalist because everyone universally is infected by sin. And so in verse 9, Paul seems to be saying, are we Christians? You take out the word Jews, it wasn't there. It may be Jews. It may be Jews. But on the other hand, he may be saying, are we Christians inherently better off than the Jews or the Gentiles? Not at all. Paul says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Remember, Jews and Greeks means everybody. He just made a, a bit of a deal about Christians to make sure that they knew that Christians are also included in the everybody. We are all under sin. Just, if you write in your Bible, listen, if you don't write in your Bible, get over that. You should write in your Bible. Look, look, this, this, this is going to sound heretical. This is not the Word of God. The text and its meaning is the Word of God. The paper is not the Word of God. The leather is not, I mean, if you have calfskin rather than cowhide, it doesn't make it more then more of the Word of God. It's not, it's not the physical Bible that is the Word of God. So you can write. This may be a revolution. Some of you are going to feel like you just got saved. <laughs> <laughs> write in your Bible. You know why? Because you're going to forget what I'm teaching you today. Eventually. I will probably forget before I get to lunch, but um, it's so helpful to have it written in the margin of your Bible. Now, I forget what I was going to have you circle here. What he is saying is that we are, here's the phrase, we are all under sin. Now, I say mark that, circle it, put a square around it or something, because everything that follows is going to define what it means to be under sin. Under sin. Um... Paul makes this clear in his definitive word choices that all of us are sinners. Notice, notice uh, some key words here, definitive words. Um, Paul says things like, verse 9, none is righteous. No, not one. Someone will say, well, what about me? I'm, I'm actually pretty good. No, not you. Not you, no one. Verse 11, no one understands. All have turned aside. Can you hear these comprehensive terms? All have turned aside. No one does good. And in case you're thinking you're the exception, not even one. Not even one. You see, Paul isn't picking on the Jews at all. Listen, Rome is on fire. Paul is pounding on every door. It doesn't matter if you were born a Jew into a Jewish home or a Gentile in a Gentile home or a Christian in a Christian home. You must hear the bad news that your spiritual house is on fire. And proclaiming the bad news is the most loving thing that we can do, even if people mock and scoff and rail against the message it is the only message that can awaken one to the need to repent and believe and be saved. 
Let me give you a sample of how Edwards says it in his sermon. He writes, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downward with great weight and pressure toward hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivances and all your righteousnesses would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. In the 1740s, it was sermons like this that transformed the American colonies because they were awakened by the thousands thousands and thousands of men and women and young people. They were awakened to their need to flee from the wrath of God and fly to Christ for salvation, and yet the bad news of mankind's perilous standing before God in Paul's day and in ours was largely despised. Witness the complexity and the foolishness of the arguments the Jews came up with in the previous passage. As I said last week, it was difficult to unravel that text. Everybody who has tried to preach that text or has written on that text agrees it's, it's convoluted, it's difficult to translate. And, and I made the, the proposition last week that I think that the Jews did that on purpose. They were trying to make it convoluted and difficult to get people's minds off of Paul's gospel and to demonstrate, perhaps, that Paul is a heretic. Oh, Paul, they say. Oh, Paul, if your gospel is correct, God is unfaithful. Oh, Paul, if your gospel is true, God is unjust. Oh, God, we just can't trust you anymore. This is what R.C. Sproul calls God in the hands of angry sinners. It parallels what we read in Psalm chapter 2, where the psalmist points out that the nations rage and plot and scheme against the Lord and his anointed. They hate his holiness. They despise his law. They loathe his rules. And apart from the transforming power of the Spirit of God, all people join in the rebellion. Here's how Paul presents it in verse 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks and Christians, are under sin. Under sin. Now, what does under sin mean? Well, under sin means not only to be a sinner, it means to be helplessly a slave to sin. A slave to the power of sin. John R. W. Stott from England suggests that Paul appears almost to personify sin as a cruel tyrant who holds the human race imprisoned in guilt and under judgment. Sin is on top of us. It weighs us down and is a crushing burden. There is nothing about sin that is good. Sometimes it makes you feel good for a moment, but in the end it leads to judgment. There is a way that seems right to a man. Paul repeatedly, um, the psalmist repeatedly says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. The remaining verses in this passage tell us what it means to live under sin. What do people who live under sin, what do they look like? What do they do? What, what's happening in their lives? Or to say it differently, 
It reveals, this is point number two, the symptoms that identify the disease. What are the symptoms? You remember during the first year of COVID-19, it was common to find on the doors of many businesses a list of symptoms that, were, that would indicate that one may have the virus. Something similar is happening here in Romans 3, 10, and 11. Paul wants us to know that if you have the symptoms of this virus, you're not getting in. You will be left out. This is why in both Galatians and 1 Corinthians, Paul essentially says, he names a bunch of sins, life-dominating sins. And essentially, he says, people who act like this go to hell. The way he says it, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who act like this go to hell. People infected with the SIN disease are marked by five characteristics that expose how Truly sinful humans are, apart from the gospel, apart from the spirit, apart from justification. To use the appropriate theological term, this passage is really teaching us about something called total depravity. Total depravity. What does the doctrine of total depravity teach? Well, it teaches us, it doesn't teach us that all men are as bad as we could be, you can always think of someone who's worse than you, genuinely worse than you. They're in prison or they're running from the law, although that's not happening as much anymore. Rather, he teaches that every aspect of our being, listen carefully, it's not as, as though we're as bad as we could be. It's that every area of our lives, every facet of our humanity is stained by sin. We sometimes talk about the noetic effect of sin. You know what the noetic effect of sin is? It has nothing to do with Noah. <coughs> Excuse me. It comes from the word noose, which means to think. And uh, what it means is even our ability to think properly is stained and twisted by sin. Every aspect of, of the human being's being is stained by sin. And the remaining verses in this take reveal those five categories of human depravity. And the, the breakdown here is a little bit artificial. I'm just trying to put things in a manner that, that we can grasp, grasp them as sections. And you might look at it and say there's really only three or there might be four. And I just tried to make it simple and ended up making it more complicated. So it's a number, we have five. Um, so first Paul talks about a depraved mind. Depraved mind. Look at verses 10 and 11. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The phrase there at the beginning, as it is written, indicates that the author is about to substantiate what he's saying through Old Testament scripture, which Paul was constantly doing, especially relative to the gospel. And this is the first point of the gospel, the bad news. And so Paul goes back again and again and again and again and again, seven times at my count, Seven different texts that he was kind of sort of referencing without saying it, but taking little quotations like, like, an abid of, like a, 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 a pearl necklace with each, each reference coming from the Old Testament. He's stringing them all together to make his point. And he, what he's doing is he is describing humanity according to the teaching of the Old Testament. Remember, his primary concern right now is the Jews. And so appealing to the Old Testament law was very wise. And so 
we won't have time to look at all of these texts this morning, um, but several will be highlighted in your discussion with your small group this week, today or tomorrow. First, he appeals to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, which reads, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth. Isn't that interesting? So Paul's not mad and just making this up, right? I mean, when he wrote to Galatians, he was mad. But here, he's not mad at anybody. He's just quoting Scripture. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's pretty clear. And this affirms the extent of human depravity. Everyone without exception is captivated by sin. We are all infected by S-I-N. Now, can I just put in a parenthesis here, just so I don't get any mail later? I'm using disease as a metaphor. I know it's, there is a propensity to call every disorder a disease, and they're not. Uh, sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart, and so I'm using this as a metaphor. So sinners don't, watch this, sinners don't understand God, nor do they ever seek for God. To be under sin ruins our relationship with God before it begins. It's already tainted, it's already poisoned. You may say that you're a religious person, that you're spiritual, but that doesn't mean that you're seeking God. Rather, it may very well mean that you are living in rebellion against God who has clearly and sufficiently revealed himself in his world and in his word. No one really seeks for God, not the God of the Bible. He's not hiding from you. He's not difficult to find. If you were looking for him, you would find him. He's everywhere you go. You just don't want the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. You don't want him poking around in your life. He doesn't want, you don't want him to say, stop that, stop it. That's wrong. It is wrong. Say it with me. It's as if Paul is saying, I know you guys have never said this word before, but I want you to say this word, wrong. There is right and there is wrong. And what you're doing is wrong. If God, and we think about the hatred that God has for the, I mean, that people have for the God of the Bible. One theologian I read this week said this, if God were to expose his life to our hands, he would not be safe for a second. He would not, we would not ignore him, we would destroy him. And we know this is true. Because when he came, they killed him. These are manifestations of a depraved mind. And then there's depraved behavior. Sin not only ruins our relationship with God, sin ruins how we live Sin causes us to despise God's wisdom and counsel. Here Paul appeals to Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3, to declare that all have turned aside. Isaiah 53, just as a momentary departure from the text, Isaiah 53 says this, all of us like sheep have what? We've gone astray. And it wasn't an accident. The Lord had been saying, just follow me. Just follow me, follow me. I'm on the right path. I'm going to lead you the right direction. Just follow me. And they never stay on the path. We don't like your path. Valley of the shadow of death? Nope. We're going to take the other road. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned his own way. This is rebellion against God. We don't seek his counsel. We don't follow him. We prefer to be led by our feelings and impulses. But you know what the word of God teaches? And you've been around here a long time. You know this because we say it all the time. You don't know how to live until God tells you. 
You don't know how to be married until God teaches you. You don't know how to raise your children without God's counsel. Not even Adam in his perfect state was without need of counsel. So the first thing God does after creating him, he says, okay, let me tell you what you should do, and let me tell you one thing not to do. Because if you do it, it's going to be your ruin. We don't know how to live until God shows us and teaches us how to live. So Paul says, we have become worthless in the ESV, which means we have become utterly corrupt. We love the things that God hates. Apart from Christ, we desire and pursue the very things that God has forbidden. You just look at our culture, our society. Mankind bears the marks and perhaps a better word would be, mankind bears the scars of a depraved mind. And our depraved minds drive us toward de depraved behavior. Your, your behavior will always follow your thinking. And so this leads us to depraved, depraved speech. Sin ruins our speech. When I was young, growing up in New Jersey, my friends and I labored hard at outdoing one another in filthy speech. It seems like a different life now it, because, because it's, okay, born again, it is a different life. But we tried to outdo one another. I mean, it was cool, it was fun. Paul says of sinners, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It's interesting the way he structured this. If we can jump, jump out of this passage for a minute and remember what, we, what Randy read to us this morning from Matthew. Out of, it is... It is from your heart. It is what's in your heart that defiles you, right? So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so there's this progression. If you could just look up here and you'll see it visually. It is, first of all, it is the throat. And, and then it is the, the tongue. And then it is the lips. And it is the mouth. So that what is coming out of you is the problem. And it's really not the problem, but it's, the source of what's coming out of your mouth is the problem, namely your heart. And so if that's going to be redeemed, if that's going to be changed, then your heart is the target. One of the things that the Spirit changes when we are redeemed is our language, the way we speak to each other, the way we speak about each other. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Jesus came for this purpose, to change your heart. Now think about it. The biggest problems in relationships are speech problems. They're speech problems. It's how we talk to each other or don't talk to each other. We talk when we should be silent. We're silent when we ought to speak. The tongue is like a sword that can kill. The tongue has the power to kill marriages and shipwreck families. I know, I'm, I'm a biblical counselor. I've seen it a hundred times. And by the way, I, I haven't just seen it, I've done it. I don't mean I've destroyed my marriage, but boy, I've, I've made it hard many times. Depraved speech always leads to depraved relationships. Verses 15 and 16. Sin ruins our relationships. Paul draws this point from Isaiah 59, 7. And Proverbs 1.16, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known. Consider the state of American society today. Our, our relationships with one another societally have become unhinged. The murder rate in our country is off the charts. I mean, who would imagine an 800% increase 
in um, murders in a particular city. 800%. Sadly, over the years, I've counseled many married couples who were so embittered toward one another that they descended into physical violence, not only against one another, but against their children. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. That's in the fruit of the Spirit list. That's not the peace that passes all understanding. It doesn't mean you feel good in the middle of it and everything's fine. No, 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 no. This is peace. It's the kind of peace that's the opposite of war. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. One of the fruits. But for the unregenerate man or woman, there is often a total lack of peace. Even when not manifested in verbal hostility or physical hostility. And then there is, finally, a depraved theology, verse 18. Once again, sin ruins how we think about God. We end where we began. This is really, all of this is really about your relationship with God. In Psalm 36, 1, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God where there's no fear of God, there's no restraint. There are no boundaries that keep, a, that keep one's flesh in check. And when you think about it, everything begins here. It all starts with our theology, whether we believe there is a God or not. Whether we believe a God, there is a God before whom we will one day give an account or not. It will dictate the way you live. It'll dictate the way you think. It'll dictate the way you speak. It'll dictate what will happen in your family and among your children. And can I just say, God's way is better, but you'll never be able to do God's way unless he changes your heart. And so here we have it, a depraved mind, depraved behavior, depraved speech, depraved relationships, depraved theology, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But the truly wonderful thing is that there is a cure. It's a cure. A cure for the SIN disease and how it's affecting your family. It's a cure. Remember when we used to discipline our children? You know, we didn't want to be... I mean, I'm a preacher, but I didn't want to be preaching to them the gospel. I, I, I wanted wanted to invite them with the gospel. And so when we disciplined, we always, I hate to say always, that's probably not true. But often, as much as we could think about, remember to do it, we would sit them down and say things like, okay, so you've sinned and, and you've just been disciplined. How, do, how does that make you feel? And they always like, what kind of idiotic question is that? <laughs> you know, you always get that look. I, I get it, I get it, I expected the look. Do you like this? Do you want to spend the rest of your life feeling this way? Because I'm, I'm here to tell you, this is why Jesus came to die. To resolve your problem with sin. Jonathan Edwards got to the end of his sermon, and he concluded with the following words. I love this. It's archaic language. I tried to smooth it out a little bit, but I'll try to read it slow and carefully. At the end of his sermon, he says this. And now we have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door, calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from east and west and north and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in now. With their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins with his own precious blood. 
and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. How awful it is to be left behind in such a day, to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see many rejoicing and singing in their hearts with joy while you have cause to mourn and sorrow in heart. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awaken and fly from the wrath to come. Fly to Christ. Oh, fly to Christ. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ cures the terminal disease of sin. It is our only hope. And it is the most glorious hope anyone could ever have imagined. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness toward us. And you weren't afraid about, you weren't concerned about us being offended when you told us the truth in your word. We know that many people are offended, and at one time we were offended. But you have turned that offense into the most glorious part of our lives. We who once scoffed at a crucified Messiah, we now bow before him, not in some kind of servile fear, but in joyful worship. In part, because knowing you has changed us. You've caused us to love you in ways that we never thought we could love you. And the reason we love you is because you have loved us even while we were sinners. Christ died for us. And so we praise you and we worship you. And we ask, Father, would you send your spirit to do for others what you have done for us. May they realize that the door is still open. May they fly through that door and find on the other side the nail-pierced, forgiving, gracious Christ. These things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus.